Well, good morning. My name is uh, Matthew, and um, I have have the privilege of sharing with you, talking uh, to you about perhaps my favorite chapter in the entire Bible. We all have those debates. Who's better, Picard or Kirk? Picard's coming back to TV. Did you guys hear that? Oh, man. So excited. Superman or Batman? Batman shirt, and I wore my Superman shirt today, so... Yeah, so I'm going to go with Superman, but for me, Romans 8 is my favorite chapter in the entire Bible. It was a moment for me when I read it, when I read it for the first time, I was was a young man, and it was was a light bulb moment for me in my faith. It was was a moment when, when the entirety of what it means to be a Christian it just, it just clicked in my, in my being. I grew up in the church. I, I had a, a great experience. The church I grew up in was, uh, was founded in 1804. It was one of the oldest Baptist churches in Canada. It was beautiful. It had stained glass windows and the carved pews. And, and I loved going to church, observing the rituals. And my dad was a pastor. I got seven sermons a week. And, <laughs> and, I, and my parents were wonderful, sincere people, but it, it had to move from something I understood in my mind to something I was aware of in my heart. Romans 8 was when the whole faith of Christianity converged for me. It's, it's about as close as I have to a conversion experience. I grew up in the church. I have two moments in my life, one of them being when I was baptized, and the other was when I read Romans 8 for the first time. It has brought peace and comfort to countless Christians over the years. It is a beautiful passage. And if you've never read it, I would just encourage you to read it. We're not going to be able to really, really work through the whole chapter here. Um, it's, it's situated in the middle of Paul's uh, masterful theological work, the book of Romans. If you've never read the book of Romans, it's it, at times overwhelming. There's a pastor named John Piper who was in Minneapolis who preached, wait for it, 225 sermons over eight years on the book of Romans. How's that for a sermon series? So people have spent thousands and thousands and thousands of pages writing about this book. It is an incredibly wonderful, beautiful book in the Bible. Martin Luther, who was the the, the kind of the reformer, the one who kind of kicked off the Protestant Reformation, called it the most important piece in the New Testament. As much as I love it, I love studying theology. I love tackling things theologically. I think there's a danger that we can sometimes treat the book of Romans simply as that, as Paul's great theological argument for faith. But it's it's much more than that. Paul is writing a letter to encourage Christians to, to understand who they are, to embrace who they are in Christ, and to live in peace with each other and in the world that they find themselves. If you don't know anything about Paul, he wrote... Um, he wrote a lot of uh, the, the parts of the New Testament. He, he grew up persecuting uh, Christians. He was a, a zealous Jew. He was a brilliant Jewish Pharisee, incredibly gifted uh, intellectually, and he was uh, trained under a brilliant uh, Pharisee. He probably would have had the entire law memorized word for word. He knew his Hebrew Bible. But on a road to Damascus, he had an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, and he did a complete 180, one of the most remarkable transformations in the history of religion. 
He was going to jail people, and he ended up knocking on the door and saying, can I join you? How would you like to have been there when that happened? But Paul was absolutely convinced. He wrote Romans with a sense of mission, a sense of purpose. He felt called by Jesus to bring the gospel to the world, and he was convinced that what he was saying, what he was writing, what he was doing is true. And I want us to sort of walk away with a little bit of what Paul has, a little bit of that conviction, that the truth that we're going to look at this morning, we can be convinced, convicted, that what we believe is true. So we're going to start off right at the beginning, Romans 8, 1 and 2. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Can I go home? (laughs) (laughs) Therefore, there is now no condemnation. That was the moment my entire view of God changed. In Christ, I am not condemned. Paul is dealing with a problem, and he's been dealing with it throughout this entire book up until this point. And it's a problem that each and every person of the human race has. And we need to understand, we need to sort of grapple with what Paul is dealing with before we can really understand and appreciate the truth in this passage. We're going to go back earlier, very briefly, uh, quickly in chapter 5, Paul Paul deals with the sin of Adam. And he says that in in Adam's sin, we were led to condemnation. If we are now not experiencing condemnation in Christ, we need to understand that why we need to understand why we experience condemnation in Adam. For Paul, like I said, Jewish thinker, Jewish writer, grew up in the context of the Jewish faith, deeply aware of all the the stories and the, the the passages in Scripture. For him, Genesis three is in the back of his mind. If you don't know anything about Genesis three. It's the, it's the story of the fall, where Eve and Adam, they disobeyed God's command, they were deceived by the serpent, and they, and they sinned and brought sin and death into the world. If you were here a couple weeks ago, I, I preached on Genesis 1, 1 and 2. And one of the things I said was that sometimes we have this sort of dismissive approach to Genesis. We just sort of, we, we can sort of look at it and just sort of, we don't want to talk about it. I have friends that when I told them I was preaching on Genesis 1, they were just like, why? <laughs> but we can do that to Genesis. We don't, we don't always like to talk about it. But we can still walk away. We, we need to deal with it. It's extremely important to our faith, to the story of the Bible, and we need to approach it and learn something from it. I don't know about you, but I, I don't know if you ever had that conversation with someone and, and they're talking to you about creation or they're talking to you about the fall and they just say, are you serious? Do you seriously believe that sin and death entered the world through two people eating a piece of fruit? I'm a big fan uh, of, of music, obviously, and when I grew up, I was a fan of a, of a musician, a singer-songwriter named David Bazan. He was the, was the singer-songwriter for a group called Pedro the Lion. And over the years, he's transitioned from a person who grew up in the church 
uh, had Christian faith and has now sort of walked away from his faith and sort of we would call him probably an agnostic. But in one of the first songs where he sort of talked about his, his reason for sort of leaving Christianity, he talked about it as, I couldn't come to grips with Genesis 3. I can't accept it. And he wrote this in a song. He said, wait just a minute. You expect me to believe that all this misbehaving come, came from one enchanted tree. And helpless to fight it, we should all be satisfied with this magical explanation for why the living die. Let's just talk about it. Let's just deal with it. If you are here last week, you heard John talk about Scripture being a mirror. It's the place we go not only to understand God, but it's a place we go to also understand about ourselves. I don't know about you, but when I read the story of Adam and Eve, I see something that I'm very much familiar with. Adam and Eve knew what they were supposed to do. They had an awareness of right and wrong. They had something on their heart from God that told them they needed to act a certain way, and they didn't. I don't know about you, but when I read Genesis 3, I see myself very clearly. I see my insistence to live my life self-determining apart from God. The sin of Adam and Eve was that they experienced an awareness of God's presence, they understood their calling to act as image bearers of God, and they knew they were supposed to live in cooperation with him, and they chose their own path. The result of which is that humanity became estranged from God. Later on, uh, Paul would write this. He said, The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Before we, before we proceed, we need to, I just made, need to make a quick comment about that word flesh. In our society, sometimes we have sort of a, this connotation of flesh being like sort of sexual sin. But for here, here, Paul is simply using the word flesh to describe the sinful nature. The sinful nature is more than just disobeying a set of rules. It's a state of being incurably bent toward putting the self first above the good of the others and of God. We all, we all experience this. We all manifest this bent in various ways. And in a very real sense, we are condemned, like Adam and Eve, to live in a world plagued by human selfishness and struggle. I see myself every time I read Genesis 3. I see sin that's constantly under the surface. And another thing, I've, I have kids, and they kind of reveal a lot of my weaknesses and a lot of my failures, like literally every hour of every day. <laughs> Genesis 3 is a profoundly real and true book. There's a, uh, a theologian out of Oxford named Keith Ward, and he's, he's not approaching sort of Christianity in the way that I would approach Christianity, but he wrote a book called... Uh, Religion and Human Nature, and he said this in it, and I think, I think it's, it's worth reading. It therefore seems to me beyond dispute that there must have been a first sin in the history of this planet. There must have been a moment when a conscious being decided to ignore an obligation when it need not have done so. It is not an antique fable. It is an indisputable fact that sin entered the world through the free action of a conscious being which chose to do what it should not and need not have done. So, I don't know. Whatever you want to do with Adam and Eve, but I'm going to just say this. 
Let's not pretend that human beings aren't responsible for the sin and suffering of ourselves and of others and of the world we live in. The beautiful thing about Romans, however, is that it doesn't just point to our situation, but it points to our solution as well. We're going to continue reading, skip down a bit to verse 9 and 17. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Uh, Keep going. Should be more there. Or is it? Yeah. For those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are God's children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his suffering in order that we may also share in his glory. The reality of the Christian faith is that in Adam we are estranged from God, but that in Christ we are adopted into God's family. I've been noticing something, uh, a, a certain pattern of faith. Something happens when a person puts their faith in Jesus, and they decide to follow him. It's something I've experienced in my own life. It's something I've witnessed in the life of my family and friends. But when a person's faith becomes real, it's as if something inside of them is going to war. When we put our faith in Jesus, the text says the Spirit of God lives in you, and that Spirit is interested in transforming your life. He's interested in doing something in my heart. And sometimes that can be a very painful process. One of the things that I find fascinating about those who would charge uh, Christianity, critics of Christianity, is that they often charge us with subscribing to faith because it's some sort of easy way out. I don't know about you, I have no idea what that, those people are talking about. <laughs> faith is extremely Difficult. When you enter the realm of the spirit, you enter, you enter into a battle with a sin nature that stalks you every day. It is around every corner of my life. It's not easy. Not only that, but we are told that suffering is that which brings us into the likeness of Christ. That sounds pretty easy. Suffering is the process of the discipleship into Christ. I mean, there's, there's so many sermons that we could just branch off into. But the belief that God can take something that isn't good, that is painful, that is bad, sometimes feels meaningless. But he can take that and work it into something good for me or others the situation, the environment that I'm in. It's a hard thing to watch your child do something that's hurting them or experiencing something. Don't, 
don't do that. Don't jump on the bed. Don't jump on the bed. Don't <laughs> Sometimes our suffering is the greatest teacher we can have. Christianity becomes a lens when we step into it. It's not only a lens where the problem comes into focus, but it's, pro- it's, it's a lens where the solution comes into focus as well. The beautiful solution to the problem of our sin is that in Christ we are adopted into the family of God. I like to think of... of I, I spent a lot of time thinking about the cross. I'm, I'm a, it's no secret I'm making a terrible life decision and went to grad school. And I'm studying theology, and one of the things that I'm, I, I think about a lot is the cross. And what happened at the cross? It's incredible to me that when we, when, we, when we think about the cross, it's the moment when the creator of everything walked on this earth, and instead of embracing him, humanity fled, abandoned him, and eventually crucified him. There was a great intervention happening on God's part. He said, look at what your sin will cause you to do. Look at where you will end up apart from me. I will come in. I will experience the pain, the suffering, and be treated like a sinner to get you back into my family. That's an incredible, incredible event in history. And one that when we put our faith in this event, we can experience a peace and security that will never leave us nor abandon us. Martin Luther, who I mentioned earlier, he, he said this in, in his preface to, the, to his commentary on Romans. He said, The Holy Spirit assures us that we are God's children no matter how furiously sin may rage within us. So long as we follow the Spirit and struggle against sin in order to kill it. Because nothing is so affected, effective in deadening the flesh as the cross and suffering. Paul comforts us in our suffering. He says that the Spirit, love, and all creatures will stand by us. The Spirit in us groans and all creatures long with us that we be freed from the flesh and from sin. A couple years ago, um, some of you may know, I don't know who I've, I've shared this with, but a couple years ago on Easter Sunday, uh, as my, my wife, myself, my sister were in church, uh, we got a phone call. My dad, who was just about to go up and preach his sermon on the resurrection of Jesus, had gone into cardiac arrest. In a small church of about 20 people, there happened to be two nurses there who were doing CPR on him. When we got the call, um, it was, doesn't look good, not responding. They're taking him to the hospital. Meet us there. When we arrived, they had got him back by apparently had to defib him eight times in the ambulance to keep him alive. And as we arrived, they were putting him in a coma. They shipped him off to London, and we waited for him to die. We were given about a 1% chance that he would come out of it, let alone come out of it okay. Suffice it to say, remarkably, there were nurses dancing in the halls. There were 
people saying they've never seen anything like this and my father came back to life. It's one of the most amazing things I've ever seen in my life. But as he came out of his coma and we realized he was going to be okay, as I was sitting there on his bed with my Bible, with barely any energy and strength, he said this, Romans 8, 31 to 39. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we faith death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor life nor death, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. What does that? What causes that to come to you when you don't know if you're going to have any more breaths left in life? What comes, what causes that, to give that type of security, to just face anything with the utmost confidence of faith? The person who wrote this would go to his death, believing and trusting and convinced that what he was a part of, what he was doing, what he was saying was true. It's the belief that in Christ we are a part of God's family. Very quickly, when we are part of God's family, it's, it's, no one can stand against us. I don't, we talk about this all the time here, but we are a part of something so much bigger than ourselves, something that has been happening for thousands of years and has been changing people's lives. It has given people hope in the most hopeless of situations. There is no one that will be able to stop this. Secondly, there is no one that will condemn you. I am a child of God. He loves me and he is doing something in me to help me overcome the sin in my life. And no one can stop us. When we are on this mission, we can be convinced that it will change people's lives, change people's hearts. We've just scratched Romans 8. Maybe I'll convince John into letting me preach the next 50 sermons on it. But I, I hope you've got a little bit of a taste of what, what Paul was convinced of. And I hope you can walk away with this morning being convinced that what you were a part of and what you were doing and the struggles you are have, just be confident that God is for you and no one can be against you. Let's just, let's just pray. Father God, I just thank you so much for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for what you did on that cross. 
that profound act of love, that profound intervention of you into humanity that has brought us back. If there is anyone here, including myself, if we are going through moments when we don't, we don't know, we have doubts, we have fears, would we be just reminded of all that we have in Christ as a member of your family? God, use us, work through us, and help us to be a light to others who are in darkness, who need to be freed from the burden of their sin. We commit our lives to you, God, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.